Hello, and welcome back to A Rabbi and a Philosopher Walk Into a Podcast. For those of you listening on any streaming service, A Rabbi and a Philosopher is now being filmed. So keep an eye out for our social medias, and we'll point you in the direction of where you can find that when it's available. I'm Sol Worth, and I'm joined by Rabbi Jonathan Gollum. And today we're going to be discussing all sorts of things to do with morality. But in particular, we're going to be talking about whether or not morality can ever be found or known without religion. So, Jonathan, start us off and tell us a little about what you think morality is and where it comes from. It's a big question and something that philosophers have struggled with, have debated for centuries. Basically, when we say morality, what do we mean? It's a great question. That is the question. That is the question. I would imagine that most people would say morality is simply knowing what is right or what is wrong, or alternatively, practicing what is right or what is wrong. Yep. There can be a gap between those two. When we say right or wrong, how do you know what is right or wrong? Who decides what is right or wrong? Let us imagine that I can decide what is right or what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Am I in a position to tell you that that is right or wrong? So there's two issues. There's number one, is a human being in a position to adjudicate what is right or wrong? Mm-hmm. And secondly, let's imagine he or she is. Does that mean that that obliges everybody else to follow suit? Or, in short, as they say, when you say morality, whose morality? Yes. Uh, One of the uh, books that the late Lord Sachs wrote, Lord Jonathan Sachs, one of his first books introduced me to another book by an American author called Samuel Huntington, mm-hmm. The Clash of Civilizations, a book you're probably familiar with. And that was written in the 1990s, I think it was in 1993. And I can imagine that when 9-11 happened, he would have watched the scenes unfold on screen and said, I told you so. Finn. Because I think this is fair to say, because some time ago I checked this out. If you commit murder, you can expect to be pursued by the law enforcement, the police, prosecuted, and if you're guilty, then you'll be put away in jail for not time. Yes. If you commit adultery, it's not a criminal offence. No, not in this country. Not in this country. Anymore. Anymore. And there's a host of other stuff in the anymore bit that belongs there as well. Oh, lots of things that used to be illegal. Used to be illegal. Definitely. And if you went to Saudi Arabia, with great respect to their kingdom, you might find a discrepancy in those two points. Number one, if you commit adultery, I do believe it is an offence. Definitely. I don't know how, where it stands on the criminal ladder, but it's an offence. Quite a serious effect, why within in a lot of I imagine it is, but I, I can't I don't know the Saudi Arabian legal system 
sufficiently well to be able to say that. I think it went straight under Sharia law, is my understanding. So it operates right. on a similar right. similar sort of vein as divine command theory, which is essentially what you believe in. Um, so, so. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I'm not trying to show you law. Well, no, obviously. For some very fundamental reasons, which I hope to get to in the course of this discussion. Mm. So if you commit adultery, that is an offence, and they will pursue you for that. If a husband, and you can correct me if I get this wrong, if a husband catches his wife committing adultery and shoots her or kills her as a product of that, he is not guilty of murder. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact... The, well, I have checked this out. Yeah, no. There, there is, there really is that expert, I have to say. There is definitely something along those lines. Um, so therefore, you have murder and adultery in one country. One's illegal, the other is not. And in another country, the other way around. But who's right? And how would you ever decide that? Can I, can I ask you something at this point, then, yeah. before, before we go into the, into the depths of the discussion on what is the correct morality? Um, do you think that morality and illegality are necessarily... Uh, they're obviously related, but it's, it's, a, common, it's a common mistake. Yeah, do, not, do not confuse the two. Yeah, it's a common mistake. What's illegal? What is legal is moral. Yeah, what's illegal isn't necessarily moral, and what is legal isn't necessarily moral. Yes. For instance... I mean, this is common stuff in your, probably your line of work better than in mine. Yes. Telling a lie. Mm. If I was to lie to you, mm. it's not illegal. Would it not was a situation? If it was in court, it would be. I'd rather say in court. We're not right, right now, you and I. You and I, just if I was to say something which isn't true, I haven't done anything illegal. You cannot prosecute me for that. Yeah. But it's not very moral. No. No, certainly. Um, there'll be a lot of cases where the two will overlap. What is illegal is also immoral. You so, in the sense that the legality is supposedly derived from morality. No. You know, as I etched off into uh, uh, this sort of conversation about uh, the Robin Hood law. Mm. Uh, to steal from the rich, to give to the poor. And seriously, imagine yourself, you came across somebody who was had collapsed in the street mm. and really needed food and you had nothing on you, no money, and you ran somewhere and you simply shoplifted some food and ran back to the firm and gave the food to, to, to literally maybe even save his life. Mm -hmm. Society, and that's the big thing here, is that the many more morals are dictated by society. Society would say what you did is technically illegal. But I don't think they would say it's immoral. Uh, no, I think it's... I, well, I first of all think it's very difficult to make an assertion about what society as a whole would ever claim anything is. But I think you're right. There's a reason that Robin Hood is remembered as a hero rather than as a, a villain. villain. Yeah. So shout out to the to the hometown of Nottingham. Yeah, actually, it's Robin of Loxley, which is a part of Sheffield, by the way. I come from Sherwood. I've been to the Major Oak many times. Uh, we're having Robin Hood, thank you. Yeah. Especially because it's the only thing we've got going for us. If you go to Nottingham, like every other pub and every other like school is called Robin Hood or something like that. It's the only thing we've got going for us. Right. Okay, well, I'll let you have that. It Please do. It really, really means something to you. But I get asked this question, and basically mm. what we're saying is to steal for the rich to give to the poor does 
the end good justify what might have been something wrong or immoral? Does the end not justify the means? It's a very good question. Uh, and there may be many instances in life where we come across these things where we push the barriers a little bit, push the boundaries. We do things which are not quite right because you feel it's justified in this set of circumstances. And there could be a million examples of that. So what's illegal and what's immoral sometimes overlap and sometimes they can be seen as independent. You can know something which is illegal, which is not immoral, and some things which are immoral, but is not, but not said they've been legal. So that's uh, in general terms. But when we talk about what's right and what's wrong, I do find a number of things that I've noticed in my personal experience. People like to do what's right. Mm. And they want to steer away from doing what's wrong. There seems to be an innate desire for us to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have the trust of the person who's asked you the question, they will do what you say is the right thing to do. So frequently, when it comes to religious practice, let's say there's a funeral and family are there, not necessarily religious people, and they say, Rabbi, tell me what, what's the right thing to do here? And I say, well, the right thing to do is X, Y, and Z. It's fine, thank you very much, as long as we do the right thing. There was no arguing about the legalities, about the whys and the wherefores of it being right. There's an acceptance. If he's a rabbi and this is a religious thing and he's supposed to know, he tells me this is right, we'll do it. So there's an innate wanting to do the right thing. To do the wrong thing would feel uncomfortable with that in some way. So there seems to be a product for human nature to be, want to do the right thing. Mm. Now, the question is, this is the big question, and this has been discussing for decades, who decides what is the right thing? So let me put a hypothetical question to you. Mm. And do not answer me from a practical point of view. Answer me from purely logical point of view. Mm -hmm. Why is murder wrong? Well, it's a difficult question to answer as a yes or no. Uh, let me let me take let me take this opportunity to first explain just a little bit of, about my own my own personal ethics and morality. Uh, so I'm what's known as a, a moral anti-realist. So. I don't believe that morality exists as a natural property in the world. So whereas um, whereas things like energy will always exist and entropy and uh, forces, they will continue to exist forever or for as long as the universe continues to exist. Morality will cease to exist when humans cease to exist, at least in my view. Because I don't believe that morality is coming from an eternal higher power. I believe that when humans cease to exist, things that were once good and bad will be insignificant. Because when there is no one to remember that something happened, what does it mean to say it's good or bad? If I, if I make the claim that murder is wrong, okay, and, and I kill you, Okay, well, why is that wrong? We can say that is wrong. So that's the first thing to say. My answer to your question, is murder wrong? Yes, most of the time. It's not an absolute rule. It's not something that I think God said murder was wrong, therefore it's always wrong. But I think, sure, in most of the times that we will call 
murder and let's not let's not overcomplicate that by adding in whether abortion might be murder or whether euthanasia might be murder or any of those things me stabbing you right now definitely wrong but in a billion years time all the humans have died out the earth is gone right a trillion years time a quadrillion years we keep going i don't know how long the universe is going to exist for but let's let's go until there is nothing left. Matter has collapsed back in on itself, and there is nothing left. The universe is 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 back to being a void. Is my killing of you still wrong, on some sort of universal scale? The universe is huge and unfeeling. It doesn't care for us. We are such minuscule specks in the lifespan of the universe, and in fact not only in size, but in time. The amount of time that we exist in comparison to the universe is mathematically equivalent to 0%, right? You can do, you can do mathematical formulas that prove that 0.0 recurring 1 or 9.9 .9 recurring are actually equal to 0 or 10 because that becomes a certain point where it's so infinitesimally small that it doesn't really matter. So on that view, I think that morality absolutely is important and we need to have discussions about it. We need to act ethically and we need to think about what morality is. But I don't think we should arrive at the conclusion that it is something natural or innate, because I think without humans, morality would have never developed and without humans, it will cease to exist. And so on that view, yes, murder is wrong, but not in the way that I think you're meeting it. Man. I wasn't got a question quite as complicated as that. And I think that, that what you said about people not being here would could be reinterpreted simply as morality is something that governs people who are capable of making a choice between good and bad. If there's no people, mm. then morality is redundant. So whether it exists independently or not, is not really going to get into it could exist in the kind of there's nobody there to use it so who cares so for instance me killing somebody would be wrong but for an animal to kill another animal you couldn't say that was immoral because they don't have the choice i don't know i think you're absolutely right. right i think but what more i was after is when i say you said that it yes you think it's wrong but maybe not in the way i would say it just left it's wrong i asked you to prove it how could you prove that killing another person is wrong? And do not give me the simply it's impractical. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's not a, a moral argument. That's, that's a bit of a practical argument. So here's the difficulty with that question is, what do you mean by the word wrong? There's, it, comes, it comes semantically charged with specific with the specific connotation of what you mean by wrong. And the reason I answered in the way that I did is that I don't think anything is wrong or right on some grand scale. So you ask, prove to me that it's wrong. Okay, well, what does wrong mean on my view? I think something is wrong if you shouldn't do it because it violates, in this specific circumstance, someone else's rights. And I don't necessarily believe in natural rights either, but I believe that I believe in, you know, rights that come about through social contract theory. So essentially my view of morality comes from I think as functioning members of an intelligent society, you're clearly right. We have absolutely developed the ability to differentiate between what we think of as good and bad 
And the fact that we have this choice to make means that morality exists. It is something that exists because we, but, but in the same way, you know, mobile phones exist and Wi-Fi exist and Wi-Fi will cease to exist when humans stop to exist. So yes, it is real, but it's not some natural property that exists in the universe. It is purely a creation of humans. And I believe it comes from, like I say, social contract theory, which evolved alongside human evolution and human society in the sense of that the only answer I can give you is a is a fairly practical answer is, okay, well, why don't we kill each other? You know, love love your neighbor and do not do unto them as you would have done to you is absolutely true. Whether or not it comes from God, you know, and, and as I've said this before, any atheist like Richard Dawkins who thinks the Bible is useless and that the whole thing should be thrown out is wrong. Any atheist who doesn't understand the value of the Bible is a fool and is or is young. Like, it was a long time where I didn't understand the value of it and I was young. And, you know, you, you come to realise absolutely these stories and this teaching built the world that we live in and secular ethics were developed on the back of religious ethics or as a response to religious ethics, which, which means they couldn't have happened without the religion but that the religion shouldn't be the thing we focus on. And in that sense, no, I can't prove to you that murder is wrong. I think it is as wrong as an individual thinks it is. And in this society that we live in, where we believe in the rights of the individuals, which comes from divine right of the individual, from the Torah, uh, I think that that is what means that murder is wrong is that just as I wouldn't, I have the right not to be killed by you, you have the right not to be killed by me. But it's not some objective universal thing. It's nothing more than you and I as two humans treating each other with the respect and the dignity that I think you deserve. I see what you're saying. So we are, in effect, heading towards the same society as the Holocaust. Well, let me explain what I mean. Okay. You basically said to me, and correct me if I misunderstood you, that you can't really prove there's anything inherently wrong in murder. It's yep. just that this is the way society works, and we have agreed by social contract that murder is wrong, and therefore we don't do it. But if society was to say that we are now rewriting that contract, which is what happened in Nazi Germany in the 30s, and society became okay with killing people, maybe not everybody, but specifics, handicapped people, people of color, as you and I know, probably better than me, people of Jewish origin. So then society has rewritten the contract and says it's okay. So based on your argument, I would have to agree that in that case, yeah, a Holocaust is okay. Murder is okay because everyone's come along with it. Everyone's agreed to it. So really, when we... Let me give a good example. Mm. One of my, I won't say favorite examples, one I use a lot. It's taken from Lawrence Reese's books. He's a BBC uh, reporter and he makes documentaries. And he did a series of documentaries on Auschwitz mm. that he brought out in 2005. It took him 15 years to research the material for all that. And he picked it in a unique part of history where he was able to 
get behind the Iron Curtain and she had just come down in 1990 and 89. And, and he was able to interview people who had been uh, either victims in a big way of the Holocaust or themselves perpetrators. He would get older. He said sometimes it took him a year to get older but an interview with somebody who was a former Nazi, but he did it eventually. So he recalls in his book, in the autumn of 1944, a certain Übersturmführer Konrad Morgan turns up in Auschwitz. What's he there for? To investigate corruption. How do we know he was there? Because one of the Nazis who gave these interviews to our friend Mr. Reese, who some years later was actually prosecuted in the German court, and he was um, Otto Gruling, his name was. This Otto records all of this. He says he came back from wherever he'd been. And if ISIS locker's been sealed with the Gestapo seal, you dare open anything like that. And he goes to Nazi's face, so what on earth's going there? They've got a seal on my locker, I can't get in there. He said, because this fellow called Conrad Morgan is here and he's investigating what you've got inside your locker. You could only open it in front of him. So he realized he had a few things in that locker that he probably didn't want our friend Conrad to find at all. He moves the locker away from the, the wall, removes the back, takes out anything that might be too incriminating, refixes the back panel, pushes the thing back, and goes to search the head Conrad and says, Morgan, was is das? I want to get inside my... He said, fine, I just have to open it in front of you. So he opens it, looks inside, doesn't find anything too incriminating, closes it, he says, you're good to go. This Gronin had been a banker before the war, and he's still alive, I think. And he worked inside Auschwitz. He was one of uh, those people, I would say you could divide the people in the Holocaust, the Holocaust was into three groups. Those that said nothing and did nothing, but they didn't mind and go on. Those that didn't actually participate in the killings themselves, but participated in the, the, the framework around it. And he was sorting out all the money coming in, all the jewels and the down, down, and make sure it goes back to head office. And the third lot were those that actually threw the Zyklon B into the things and, and shot Jews and so on. And let's, let's also, you know, just as a side point, so there was a fourth category of people who helped. Oh, yes. I would, yeah. There was absolutely, there were Germans who did the right thing and who. In Berlin, in Berlin, after the war, there are conflicting numbers by different historians. You've got Lawrence, he says one number. You've got Cornelius Ryan that says another number. But somewhere between one and a half thousand, two and a half thousand Jews who emerged from hiding places in Berlin, mm. right under the nose of the Nazis. Yeah. I used to know a Holocaust survivor who was from Berlin, and I asked him to explain how that happened. And why, how many people did he think it would take to shelter one Jew? So he has said, he estimated it would have taken about 20 people. Because you bought too much food, you got yourself into trouble. Because they said, why are you too much food that you're hiding someone? So everybody bought a little bit of stuff that didn't look too mm. suspicious. And that's how they look. So if you say this, strike somebody you want to have two and a half thousand, say it's 2,000 Jews. So 2,000 times 20. Ten people accounted for some crossover between those people, probably. But all right, so we're talking about several tens of thousands. A lot of people, a lot of people in Berlin. That's a lot of Germans, yeah. Right. So we've got to remember that there's even in the depths of immense evil, there will always be some good there. And these, and the reason he said they did it is because they didn't see people as Jews or Germans. They saw you've been in Berlin. They were very liberal-minded. So it's all to be said for liberal-minded people because they didn't see. You're this, you're that. You see, we're all one to the race. 
So what point I'm getting to? Yeah, he investigates this corruption, people stealing the money, people not handing over, basically helping themselves to all the goodies that come in off these transports, because the tens uh, Auschwitz at its height could process ten thousand people in a day. So you've got all these people being killed and then burned to ashes. There's nothing there. They've got all their possessions there. This reaches for the taking. It's unbelievable. And so he comes, and it doesn't occur to Herr Conrad, who's investigating the immorality of pilfering and stealing in Auschwitz, where they just murder 10,000 people in a day. That isn't immoral. He doesn't see the absurdity of his job. He doesn't see the, the irony in what he's doing. He's come, and he was a lawyer in peacetime, to investigate corruption, illegalities, and the fact that all this is going to seem to bother him. And that's how many of the Germans turn in their heads, that this, what was deemed to be illegal and immoral, was made good of a process of a lot of indoctrination to the point the society said, yeah, you present unser Unglied. And therefore, it's okay, it's right. So we cannot have an immorality dictated to purely on the fact that it's a moral contract. There's got to be some absolutism to it that says this is immoral, irrespective of what everybody else says. And who are the heroes in the Holocaust story? Those Berliners who said to the Nazis that we will hide these Jews anyhow. Or the Edelweiss group that fought against them. Or the people, you know, that wanted to try and blow Hitler up. These are the guys that went against what society said. Went against the way. Okay, I have, I have an answer. There is an answer. Okay. We never should base morality on one civilization. And the idea that it that morality comes from a social contract doesn't mean that morality has to come from a particular society. Now, a good friend of mine and an upcoming writer in this uh, in this subject is a, a guy called Oliver Jackson, and he has this predominant theory about the ladder of ideas. And uh, at some point, I, I hope to have him on the podcast because he's a really, really wonderful, wonderful person to talk to. Um, and his idea, which I, I completely agree with uh, in this circumstance, is that we shouldn't be looking at one civilization and taking the morality from that civilization. What we should look at it as is that that civilization is, is the top of a ladder of ideas. And along the way, through all civilizations, there are important things to take from each civilization. And the Torah and the Bible is on that ladder of ideas, and it absolutely deserves recognition. And so one of the things that we get from your morality is this divine right of the individual, right? It's that people, all people, are worth something. And on the religious view, it's because humans are endowed with the divine spirit from God, right? But on a on a secular view, we can still have individualism. We can still have libertarianism, not in the American sense of libertarianism, because American libertarianism is something else entirely. But like classic liberalism, like freedom to do anything that you want to, up until the point that it harms someone else, it encroaches on someone else's individual uh, liberties. The reason that we know 
th that is the correct morality, correct morality as much as there can be correct morality, is that that idea exists throughout the ladder, right? And we can see how it's developed. Now, but just because it exists in the Torah doesn't mean we have to take all the other stuff from the Torah, and it doesn't mean we have to treat individuality in the exact way that the Torah treats individuality. But we also don't have to take, you know, exactly John Stuart Mill's version of individuality. He was the founding father of liberalism. Or we don't have to take any modern politician's view. And we certainly don't have to take the Nazis' view of morality. Because it's like, okay, so there's, there's this one civilization who, let's also be really careful in noticing that the Nazis didn't, like, just say that the Jews were bad and the rest of Germany went, you're absolutely right, let's kill them all. It's worth, in that circumstance, understanding the history, right? So the Jews, as you're more than well aware, and I'm sure you have much more of a knowledge of it than me, you know, have been consistently persecuted everywhere they've went, right? And they're in Germany, they're in the rest of Europe, at a time that is a hotbed for political anger, right? So after the First World War, we have the Treaty of Versailles. Germany is blamed for World War I. It was not Germany's fault. World War I happened because of the huge web of allies that both sides have. And one man was assassinated and it started World War I. And the Treaty of Versailles declared that Germany had to pay reparations to the equivalent of more than their entire GDP, right? They pinned it on Germany and it bankrupted the country. They had massive, massive uh, hyperinflation to the point where people were walking to the shops with wheelbarrows of money. People were burning cash because it was cheaper than buying wood to put on their fires. And along comes this it's difficult to, to describe Hitler with positive adjectives because I don't want to give him any credit, but he was definitely charismatic and a very good speaker and knew what people wanted. And, I mean, he also had a violent overthrow at one point, so it's not like he got in completely off his own back, but certainly he was a very popular speaker and he came along and went, I'm going to rid you of all of these bad things. I'm going to overdo the Treaty of Versailles. And it's all the Jews' fault, Right. And for your average person on the street, it's worth remembering that it's not like he went into a perfectly moral society and told some people that the Jews were bad and then they all flipped their morality on their head, right? These were struggling people who needed someone to blame it on and Hitler blamed the Jews, right? And that's wrong, obviously. And just because everyone agreed to it and Obviously, not everyone agreed to it. There were 20,000 people in Berlin who didn't, lots more across Europe. But a lot of people did. You're absolutely right. However, that doesn't mean that that morality is right or that we can't have subjective morality because the idea is that we need to look at the progression of ideas to take the learning and take the curve. And we need to be able to have a little bit more nuance than going oh, but the Nazis were bad, therefore we can't have individual morality. Okay, so let me respond to that. Firstly, um, where I'm heading with all this is trying to show that we human beings are not 
great at deciding what is moral and immoral. You talk about that just being the Nazi. The Nazi was you can't base it on one society. That well, what you do notice is that we Jews, unfortunately, are the the flag wavers on this one. That Hitler and his henchmen in Maximum spread themselves out over Europe and were able to do the same thing in nearly every other European country that they conquered, with exception of very few indeed. And they all went along with it. And we're talking about other societies. It shows you, cometh the man, cometh the hour, and yes, morality will fall aside. And my argument, therefore, is... We well, have to have agree to that. Can you make that? I mean, we talked with growing terms about the Danish and how they shipped all the 8,000 Jews in the country to neighboring Sweden. Literally, they just bundled them all about there because they knew that roundups were happening. And that isn't something that happened by a handful of people. There were loads and loads of Danish people. So there's something about their society which was chewed in. That was okay. But the rest of them, they didn't mind. Lots of other countries were happy to see the Jews deported. Father Tiso was a religious man, even paid for it. The French would never have been able to deport the number of Jews because the Germans couldn't find their way around Paris. They don't read the names and addresses and so on. And the, the French police were very willing, and they still not come to terms with their involvement in the Holocaust. But that's to getting us off the subject. My argument to you would be is that we are not brilliant at producing what is right and wrong, and that if the moment is twisted, if the influence is there, we will behave in, in an immoral way. And therefore, there needs to be some non-subjective, some eternal objective morality which tells us this is right or wrong because we don't necessarily know which brings me to the second point with the art which I mentioned early on I am not in a position to dictate to you what what morality should be because I said so it may be the best argument in the world but who am I to tell you what's immoral or what is moral and that is what I think Simon O'Hampton is saying I mean, what a civilization where there are millions of people who believe in a particular way of thinking, and then you want another civilization with equally millions of people believe in a certain way of thinking. At some point, they are destined to clash. If the world becomes a smaller place, the internet makes us all our neighbors, neighbors with people in, 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 in parts of the world that are thousands of miles away. Yeah, we will, we will clash. I don't believe that the people who flew the planes into the Twin Towers and into the um, the Pentagon believed that they were behaving immorally. They died saying Allah Akbar. They believed they were doing God's work. How do I know they are or they're not? Which comes back to why I would take the position it says there's only one person who can dictate what is right and what is wrong. And that would be the Almighty God. God can say, I have said that murder is wrong. So why is it wrong? Because God said so, why is anything wrong? Why is anything right? And it would flow from that that all the other things that God said, even if they a little bit challenged my concept of what morality may be, I would defer to his superior judgment. That would be a religious person's perspective. Okay. So I'm going to move away from defending my understanding Um of of morality because I, I I've heard your, I've heard your critiques of them and um, 
the, the next thing to say then is, okay, so if it's not individuals across time, so let's, let's, let's make it really clear that I'm not defending the idea that like any one individual should be able to decide morality. I'm very, very definitely not saying that. I'm saying morality comes from the collective consciousness across time and across civilizations. And we have to do a very difficult job as, you know, philosophers, as ethicists, we have to do a very difficult job of deciphering all of those things and trying to decide what is moral. And, you know, when new things come out, you know, when there's AI that is a new invention and all of a sudden we're, we're presented with with new with new difficulties, like, well, what if this AI gains consciousness? Do we have to give it personhood status? Do we need to give it rights? You know, that's a whole new area of philosophy. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a tricky area of philosophy. And I can't give you an exact answer to the question, you know, which society is correct. I don't think any of them are necessarily inherently more correct than any others. But what I know is certainly not more correct is divine command theory, because it certainly doesn't answer any of the questions posed. It masquerades, it, it pretends to, until you look at it a little bit further. So, okay, what is divine command theory? It's any religious system of ethics that say it's correct because God told me to, right? Well, why is your ethics correct and the men who flew the planes into the Twin Towers on the word of God why is theirs not correct? Well, on, on your view, because their religion isn't correct uh, or because well, their book is incorrect. But the problem is... The, the claim that it's the word of God wants challenging. Is that what God said? But, okay, but... So anyone who says they speak to you in the name of God, they say, well, can be the evidence. You, you, acknowledge, you, you acknowledge that the only reason for you to follow yours rather than Sharia law is that you believe what your God told you is correct and what their God supposedly told them isn't. I would argue, this goes back to a previous podcast that we talked about. Last episode, in fact. Was it the last episode? Yeah. What? And uh, if I could just slip in a, a, a comment on that. Somebody said to me after listening to that, that there was, we sounded a bit confrontational. <laughs> Which I just want to correct that we're not confrontational. Oh, we're never confrontational. I'm never this confrontational. Is, even if it appears so, that's how that's how that's how Jews do discussions. Sometimes it gets heated. We will argue. I will argue with Saul as as long as I can about certain views that he may have that I don't agree with, and, and I will it. also argue with anybody who denies him the right to hold those views because we have we this entire conversation. All of the podcasts start off with a mutual respect for each yeah. other. I think we just want to put that in there for the record. Definitely. So, and this has been ever since Saul and I have started getting friendly, and Saul and I spend many Shabbos meals together. That's always underpinned our conversations. That we, you know, we may not agree on the subject matter, but we agree that we both are right to our various positions. Mm. But just want that. On the yes, on the record, to be clear. So it's still fact. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things we had a discussion on was this concept of how do we know God said anything? When somebody comes along and says and claims, God spoke to me, I do not know if God did genuinely speak to him or he just had too much 
of the white powder the night before. <laughs> so people claim this, and in all of the faiths, and I'll say this quite openly, in all of the faiths, it goes back to one or maybe a small group of people that claim to have had a divine revelation. And that is not the case with the Judaism, the same Judaism that you and I share. This isn't about me and you. It's about us, because we'll go back to the same Torah. And the Torah was not given to one person near a rock, one individual who had a vision. It was given to 2.4 million, roughly. Someone says as high as 3 million people, standing around all of whom witnessed the same event. And Moses is given the authority to speak on God's behalf in front of all those three million people. And God effectively says, until you get an email from me that Moses has been sacked, whatever Moses says is coming from me. So that's why I believe in Moses. Well, how's that helped me with, the, with, with all the other prophets, the Isaiahs and the, and the Jeremiahs? Well, one of the things Moses says is as long as a prophet fits into a certain category of person, and this, 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 it doesn't have to do any miracles, by the way, that you have a duty, you have an obligation to believe him until such time as his truth proves be false. And how will we know if he's false? Hang on, so it doesn't have to do any miracles. Now, what are the qualifications to be a prophet in Judaism? A very, be a very holy person, a, a very aesthetic person. Be well steeped in the all of the Torah and everything. Conduct himself in a way which he shuns material wealth and pleasures, and appears to behave, by all accounts, public and private, in a very holy manner. And then one day turns up and says, "God has appeared to me and said X, Y, and Z." I tentatively believe him until such time as he's proven false. Here and there, we have had a few false prophets. Most of the time, they appear to be correct. A lot of the time, people did believe in. So what would stop you from, from claiming to be a prophet? I'm on, on a scale of one to a thousand of being holy, of that sort of holiness that will receive prophecy, I'm about minus 20 million. <laughs> cool. And what if you claimed that you were? Nobody would believe me because they'd look at the same list and say, well, do you conduct yourself with this sort of holiness? But so... So we're talking about a very high level. Let's say you you decided to start conducting yourself in that manner. So far, nothing, none of the qualities... I find that it would take a lot of work and many years' practice. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not disagreeing with that. But your qualities... By the way, this isn't limited to Jews. Because one of the yeah. big prophets in the Bible was a guy called Bilam, who was uh, a Midianite. He wasn't even Jewish. And some of the prophecies he said, interestingly enough, one or two of them have yet to be fulfilled. In other words, he prophesied something that would happen that we haven't yet got there. Or it was wrong. Well, you can't you prove that. Well, no, you're right. I can't prove it. Because it you, understand, you understand that that's the equivalent of me claiming to be a prophet by saying in a thousand years' time, X is going to happen and... For the rest of my life, I'd make you call me a prophet because it hasn't yet happened. And, uh, right, but that's not well. That wouldn't be just on the grounds of that. You'd have to do other things. No, but but actually, to be able to turn wine into water or anything like that, that isn't a prerequisite for being a prophet. It would just have the most powerful thing about the record. I can turn wine into water, but the water into wine. But that's the same. Well, I said we have to get together more often then if you do that, because that could be quite useful. 
Um, I think some Johnny should come on the podcast and just do loads of magic tricks. I think it you could you do that. Yeah, oh, that could be. Yeah, that could be. Stuff. I'll, t- well. I'll turn water to wine on the podcast once. That'll be fun. Right. So going back to the the the, the prophet here, if a prophet, the biggest proof of prophet, is able to predict something, one of the things that nobody could do is to predict the future, unless you were in touch with somebody who would know that, and that is yep. the Almighty. And there are rules to that. If a prophet predicts something bad will happen and it doesn't happen, he isn't disqualified. Because there would be the reason why something would be bad, usually due to man's misdemeanors. And therefore, they could have done, they could have corrected their behavior, they could have done teshuva, they could have done repentance. And God will cancel the bad decree, as it happened with the people that did obey the prophet Jonah. Oh, but hang on, you're contradicting yourself here. Because God's eternal and God has a plan and God absolutely knows everything at all times. So to say that God had planned for something to happen in the future, but they then did something that corrected that and God changed his mind is almost nonsensical because that doesn't fit with a view of an eternal God. Unless you believe God to be sent eternal and exists alongside human. No, that God functions at various levels. At the level where he communicates with the prophets, he's within or he's telling the prophet things which apply to us within the time frame. God knows what's going to be. Your, your question basically goes down to if God knows what's going to be, what point is there with freedom of choice? Nothing's going to happen without God knowing about it, so what's the point? And does a person have food? I believe so, that freedom of choice can exist yeah. alongside eternal God. I don't, I don't mind about that. I think that that's a perfectly feasible radical possibility. You're going to run into a problem with it if you say that God is indeed fulfilling, ticking all the boxes. And one of those is he's in total control of everything that's happening. But God... Is it possible for man to do something against the will of God? Logic says that shouldn't work. If if you go through the God story and God is... Obliv- What's the point of morality then? If humans can never do anything against the will of God anyway, if God commands everything to happen, why even have more? Yeah, well, why, why the whole the whole world? Why the whole... Act of living and doing good and doing not good uh, and right. keep away from evil. So God functions on different levels. There's a point of God where He knows what's going to be in that part. You'll never, you'll never touch that. But on a lower level, there is this demand that God gives of us, and we in this world, in the physical sense, do not have this omnipotent view, and therefore. What we do makes a difference. And God has said, your choices, which are totally free, mean something to me. Okay, so let me, let me ask you this. God's omniscient, right? God has all the knowledge of all time. Uh, he's, not, he's not even in time. He's not even in time, right? He's this outside of time yeah. and can view, can view all of time at once in a way, right? God exists everywhere and all at once. So at the point that God gave us his revelation, right, in you know, from uh, from a period of, you know, we're not exactly sure when, but potentially the sort of the Bronze Age to the Second Temple period. Like that that period of time, right? The, the thousand, into the thousands BC, right? That's the point at which he gave us this revelation. And he had the complete absolute knowledge of everything else that was going to happen to humanity. Why hasn't he given us any sort of specific teachings on anything modern? Right? Surely it's unreasonable for God to know 
that things like AI are going to exist and computers and self-driving cars and uh, electricity, right? You have to live your life. Sometimes, I mean, if you don't, this is not in, intended in, as, a, as an insult, in ways that strike me as absurd, right? The idea that the Shabbos is for rest, right? Brilliant. Uh, I don't think that exists because God rested. I think, it, it, to, in my mind, it's really obvious to me that the humans wanted a rest day, as they should, and therefore the story comes second to the humans. But that's a separate question. Whether God commanded it or not, the Sabbath is a rest day. The whole point is that you don't have to do work. Without going into the exact scriptural reason, because I know the scriptural reason, just answer me this question. Would you personally, without any knowledge of the Torah, say that it was more work to push the button for an elevator or walk up 30 flights of stairs? Definitely more work to walk up the flight. Definitely more work to walk up 30 flights of stairs. But, but you're probably wrong. But because the Torah tells you that lighting a flame is work, and therefore 2,000, 3,000 years ago, you weren't allowed to light a flame because it counted as work, that transfers to electricity, and therefore the act of pushing a button is against the laws of the Sabbath because it counts as work. Can you can you agree that you think that, that there's there's some something not right there that that's a bit not yeah sense? not right is your definition of work. Now who said that the Sabbath was a day in which you're not allowed to work? Well, that's that's the premise. Yeah, no? that's why I said to you the premise is wrong because even today, according to the halakha, to switch on these lights would be absolutely wrong. Yeah, to shut this armchair to the top of the building is how I should be perfectly permitted. Yet, Now, which of the two is going to leave me more exhausted? But one of the things I have to say about that is, though, is that it's like one of them is a commandment not to do it and on a day that you you are allowed to not work, I, I, th I but to me, the whole idea of the Sabbath having commandments is... Can we rewrite? Can we, re can we rewrite the word work? What would you prefer to rephrase it as? I would say to you, I would, I would try and define, and this works in that line set at the time, that the keeping of the Sabbath is mirrors what God did in creation. Mm -hmm. And he says so, and that's what we say when we make Kiddush, we say it. God worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. How exhausted do you think God would be? Exhausted enough that he would probably prefer to push a lift button than walk up 30 flights of stairs. <laughs> if he's a human being. Which is not. <laughs> not I in any version. I mean, if you're capable of creating something by saying, let there be, let there be, let there be, how exhausted do you expect you're going to be at the end six days of saying, let there be light, let there be firmament, let there be animals, let the... So if you well, just create that button. It's so we should I have to get to the end of this. Let me yeah, sure. It's not that God needed to rest because he was exhausted that human being as well as that energy. No. It's that God was creative for the first six days. And on the seventh day, he stopped creating. He just kept going the perpetuation of what he has already created. This is something else we spoke about earlier. That God's creation is not like my creation where I can take a silver ingot and turn it into a kiddish cup and go away. God has to create 
and then there's no silver ingot to that because silver ingot doesn't exist. Whereas I'm just creating a Kiddush type out of a pre-existing lump of silver. So I'm not creating anything, I'm just changing the shape. Whereas God is creating something ex nihilo. So he needs to keep the energy in position the whole time. Otherwise, it goes back to being its natural state, which is a nothingness. So God is creating the whole time, but he's not being creative, and there's nothing new there that wasn't already there. So the sixth day, does God does creative activity. On the seventh day, he doesn't do any more creative. Seventh day, nothing more is created. Bang on the Shabbat. So we do the same thing. We refrain from creative activity. So if you start looking through the things that God says you shouldn't do on Shabbat, that's his choice, not my choice. They're all things, more or less, except to make one or two, that are creative. They create something that wasn't there. And I ask if John a lie, carrying. If carrying doesn't fit into that, 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 that dimension, carrying remains a bit of a mystery. Uh, walking outside of a certain distance doesn't fit into this definition. But the rest of the other 39 forbidden activities are things. And just to clarify that generally in philosophy, at least, yeah. uh, if you were to give me a definition that did or an explanation that didn't encompass some of the things, you don't get to, in philosophy, say, this is the rule, but here are some anomalies. No, it means your rule is wrong. It means that your understanding doesn't work, and in which case, there's a contradiction, and contradictions shouldn't happen by God, so what does there being a contradiction point to? The fact that there's a contradiction points to that it was a human creation. No, that doesn't, that you couldn't have an alternative interpretation of that, which means that neither one of us could prove it. Yet the, the interpretation does work, even for carrying, even for walking beyond a certain distance. It's just that there it's not physically noticeable. The carrying something is carrying something is creative. You change the dimensions of the something once you take it into the street. Now you and I can carrying something in the house is is us. Why? Because domains have a certain influence over you. The domain means the particular area in which something exists. So then it has some sort of spiritual influence on you. You take it out of that domain and put it in domain. It's spiritually you've altered something. So that's the. By, no, I buy, buy something from a shop. Is that how you create it? Using money. Buying something from a shop, yeah, the act of acquiring something means that it goes out of your possession and mine is not out of shops. That too creates a sh- shift in the dynamics of the, the object. Cool. And if I come to your house for Shabbat dinner and you give me something as a gift, that's completely fine. Uh, that, if I give it to you, that's okay. But it's left your possession and entered mine. And all the, all the, all the buying something is, is yeah. you giving me something it, and it, me giving you something also. Yeah, it depends what, if I give you food and drink, yeah, but I wouldn't give you a present on Shabbat. But the only substantial difference is the reciprocality of it. It's like, it's still me giving you something and you giving me something. It's just, if I'm buying something, that giving is reciprocated and it's a trade, but it doesn't it doesn't inherently change the act. And to me, so let's 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 pull it let's pull it back to the discussion because we've gone we've gone off topic. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I wouldn't. I will try my hardest. And this is perhaps we're coming up to the festival of Shavuot uh, tomorrow evening, which is the occasion when God gave us offered us the Torah and 
we accepted it. And our catchphrase, which is a beautiful phrase, said, Nasser Venishma. Nasser means we will obey, we will do Venishma, and then we will listen, we will understand. And the Jews prefaced the obedience before the understanding, meaning that they are prepared to do whatever God says, and we'll try and understand it later. And that's what we try and do. And really God says, if he says it, it's right. Why, why would he say it? And they say something that's not right. Why would he do that? So God says to do this, to do that. And of course I do it. Sometimes I look at that and understand why that's right. I look at that and I say, I'm a clue why that has to be. You saw me earlier on Wayne Philip. If I was to sit here and talk from the day to tomorrow, I cannot actually explain why God, what I can tell you meaning, I can tell you significances, I can find you a sermonic material to, to extract from me. But if you ask me, why does God need me to wear these boxes and strap on my arms? I don't really know. What does God get out of me doing anything? He is omnipotent. He's able to create something. What difference does it make to him whether I switch on the lights or don't switch on the lights? But God has said to me through his tour, this is it does. And what you're doing is important to me. So therefore, I, I accept it. I accept it. I don't believe he's lying to me. He says it makes So, okay. So going back to all of this, strapping it back to the subject of of um, morality, which is really what we started off with. I will treat whatever God tells me as morally correct because I know that my tradition takes me back to a genuine revelation. I will question any other person's revelation unless there was enough evidence of it, enough people there to be witnesses to it all. And I will say that i would say god has a message to me and tell me what to do he has a message to the non-jewish world and tells them what to do so for instance on the subject of murder i would say that applies not just to jews because the ten commandments are said to jews it applies to all the rest of the world i said why do you know that i say well, because that is the tradition passed down to us that there are seven laws applicable to the non-jewish world okay so therefore you have murder so why is it wrong because god said so so the problem with divine command theory is that every divine command theory is exactly the same as every other. Yeah. And the only way of deciding that yours is right is deciding your religion is right. And I'm evidence that it comes from God. That's all I want. Evidence that it comes from God, yeah. sufficient enough for you to believe in it. Yeah. Right? To accept. Which you have. No. And you believe that that evidence comes from the mass revelation at Sinai, yeah. and that that the the lack of that mass revelation in other religions is why their religion mm. and their divine command theory is less accurate. Now I'm not I'm not going to have much their faith, and I'm not going to rubbish it because it is very meaningful. And you know, uh, there's a lot of John Lennon's for instance. You found all the videos of him on YouTube makes the claim that Christianity has had the biggest impact on the world. He's probably you know, probably got some. This might be something in there. In that, there are. You know, it's had a huge impact on a lot of civilization. But I would say that Christianity has its roots in Judaism. Of course, this, the bits that's had well, the we impact. Can, we can claim all of Christianity's good bits if we want. To. Let's not claim the Crusades, but we can claim the rest of it. <laughs> um, yes, we're not claiming the Crusades. <laughs> yeah, you got a good point. So, in other words, yeah, I would, I would say that there is a huge impact, and that even I don't agree with. Uh, I'm not. I'm never going to accept. Jesus as any form of any Messiah at all, for reasons brought down in Halakha as well. And there was a little piece of Maimonides which was censored from his 
book for centuries because of what he wrote about it. He wasn't afraid to say it. But the monks didn't like it being printed. So, yeah, he, he existed and he had a message and that, but I, you claim it's from God. I've said to him, I don't have the evidence. I don't claim it's from God. So, well, so, yeah, I do. Ben um, so, Nemitz would tell you the miracles that he did were definitely true. That must be, and da da da. That's fine for him, and if he and it makes the world a better place, and he so, lives a good life because of it. I'm fine about it. But if you ask me, is that the word of God? I would say I have no evidence of it. It's a faith. Okay. So it's worth saying, first of all, if anyone hasn't yet listened to episode four, which was the last episode we did on the revelation at Sinai. You know, go and listen to it and, you know, make your own decision. Listen to both of our arguments and, you know, weigh them up. Um, I am confident in my explanation of the revelation at Sinai. And I would like it to be, I'm not going to even vaguely go into restating it here. I'm not going to explain the position at all. It's in the last episode. But I want it to be clear that there are criticisms of mass revelation at Sinai. You don't agree with them and I don't agree with your defenses of them. But you, you you wouldn't be able to make the claim that the mass revelation at Sinai is, like, undisputable, right? And in the same way, everyone else's revelations and prophets are disputable. And I don't think that the mass revelation at Sinai is necessarily that much more difficult to deny than any single prophet revelation. I think it's trickier. I think that, uh, and I can understand why, for your faith, it's a very important founding story or mythology and i can understand why uh the idea of mass revelation being so much better than single prophets is very important and central to judaism but well, let's it's, have, it's axiomatic yes absolutely. without it nothing, nothing is provable but so let's so nothing let's, of the commandments can be ever accepted okay cool so let's say no, it comes from god let's then acknowledge as well that there it's i i don't think that the revelation at Sinai is provable beyond beyond doubt. Um, you know that's 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 all it has to be, right? It has to be, uh, it has to be provable to a, to a reasonable extent. And I don't think it. I don't think there's enough of a reasonable extent that proves that over any other religion. And on that, yeah, and what, I think maybe the balance of probabilities, which is a lower level, I think it is provable beyond reasonable doubt. But I think on the balance of, on the balance of probability. <laughs> I think the balance of probability you lose even more because probability no, makes a low level of um, evidence. Of course, so probability is a lower level than evidence, but you lose on probability as well because the balance of probability that uh, a miracle happened is a nonsensical question to answer. No, so you no, can't. That, that's not the bit that I will say. The balance of probability you're saying is the more lying compared to it all happened. Yeah, the balance of probability is what's the chances of you getting millions of people all saying the same story unless it happened. Right. And again, I would say... How a miracle... And again, I would say it wasn't millions of people. Go listen to episode four. Right. But, you know, that's... that's So, okay, so here's here's this question. We started off with this discussion about the Holocaust, right? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good example to use in ethics and it gets used all the time because... Genocide is arguably the worst crime there can be, right? It, it's it's pretty much the, the worst you can get. Uh, and the Holocaust is one of the worst genocides and, you know, happened really recently. What would you do if there was an Amalekite in front of you and the temple still existed? Um, well, that's a fairly uh, loaded question. 
Well, it is a loaded question. What, what would you want me to do? Well, it's not what I would want you to do. It's what God would want you to do. Because God would want you to kill him. That's the commandment, right? I've, the Amalekites. I'm not familiar in current, the details with regards to the Amalekites. My understanding is that currently that law wouldn't, that if there was an Amalekite, but first of all, there aren't Amalekites now. But my understanding is that if there were, you wouldn't be forced to genocide them because the temple isn't still standing. But there definitely is in Torah a commandment to genocide the Amalekites, yeah. to kill all of them. Yeah. How is that? How is, how is that moral? Just because God said it is. Okay, again, how do you decide what is moral or what is immoral? So I decide that it's immoral because I think that all people should have a right to life regardless of race. Personally, I don't like racism. You know, didn't, I don't think, don't think that should have to be a controversial thing to say. But no. I don't think any system... Well, like, the matter of fact, it's not done on account of it being racist. It's done on the oh, account of the very, very evil people. Oh, come on. That's like me saying, I want to enslave all the blacks. And you saying... Well, that, that's it. It might as well turn. No, but it's like... Your source, of the, your source of the Malachites is the Bible. The same Bible that says that is because they were very evil. Okay. But that's like me saying, I'm going to enslave all the black people, and you going, that's racist, and me going, no, it's not, they're evil. That's literally all it is. It's like... No, 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 you have to have evidence of it. I can make evidence for it. I can, I can, I can come up with fake, with fake evidence to prove all sorts of things. No, no. Yeah, I don't... I'm not talking about fake evidence. I'm not talking about the women. The only reason God says that you must destroy the monarchites is because he is giving me his assurance that they are evil people. Do you believe that every single Amalekite, you don't think, you think that well, someone born in Amalekite was necessarily from birth as a child evil? Yes, yes. In the terms of, of, of those Amalekites, then now they cease to exist or we've got, we, everybody's been diluted, all the nations have been diluted. So that had been written out to the book. But at the time, they were a race of inherently evil people. I don't make that decision. You see, you come along and say that you're saying about black people decided you should get rid of all black people because they're evil. Uh, that's my that's my assertion. Who says so? You say the black people just because a person is black is evil. I don't know that to be true. But if God comes along and says there's a tribe of people, if that, God told you all the black people were evil, then you enslaved them. Yeah, but he he never did his thing. Oh, but if he did, if he did, then that would be the case. In other words, I would trust God. You aren't prepared to suspend your trust. You, 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 you know, this is... Oh, I'm certainly not prepared to trust a deity who commands me to genocide someone. Right. Certainly not. That is because you, don't, be it. because you don't see him as who he is. You see him as just another opinion. But if you see God as who he truly is, okay. which is a, a being beyond your comprehension, and you have the humility to listen to his commandments. Okay, so let's take a more nuanced... Remember, I'm an arrogant person because I'm a human being. I'm arrogant. I decide, I think I'm the one to decide what's right wrong. I'm the one that gets things right. But at some point, I get to realize that, no, I'm prone to making mistakes. And I'm, even in terms of the whole nation, I can get things wrong. So therefore, I, I am acquiescent to a higher power. That higher power doesn't mean to say it's just like you'll be... I mean, it's like one, one of my members said to me about the story with Abraham and Isaac. You know, the famous story where Abraham says, well, God says to Abraham, I want you to offer up your son as a, as a, as a sacrifice, right? Of course, he wasn't serious. He was only testing Abraham. 
And Abraham was almost prepared to do it. And at the last minute, he said, do not touch the child. Don't do anything to it at all. I was only testing you. He said, but you said to slaughter him. He says, I said, I said, take him up as an offering. I didn't actually say slaughter. If you check my words, that's not what I So I'm not being, but I was testing to see whether you would do that. Now, Abraham is known in the Bible as one of the kindest people that was. How could he ever done a thing like that? As one of my converts said to me, he says, God didn't come to me and said, Do we take your son? That I'd have told him, No. What's I that? understand that on a human level. I understand what sort of moral, what sort of moral being, or even, even non moral, sort of what, sort of what sort of God tells, tells a father to kill his son and then goes, Psych, was just testing you. Yeah. And you can still look at that and go, yeah, that's a good, that's a good God, that is. You see, that to me- you fall into the same trap. You've mentioned what sort of moral God and you made the decision that that was immoral. Okay, so let me ask you this then. Based on what grass? Because you think so. You're entitled to your opinion. But by the same token, God is entitled to his. And God's opinion versus my opinion I'm afraid mine doesn't count. It just didn't fit flash on the middle of the skirt. Let me, let me ask you this then. What do you believe the conscience is? Do you believe conscience exists? Um, what, when you say conscious, what do you mean by conscious? A feeling or do you mean a moral understanding? Uh, or do you mean a practical application? That we're, we're entering into the morality discussion again. Well, that, that is what today's episode is. Yeah. <laughs> and you just give another neighbor calling it conscious. No. Because I think, to me, conscience is specifically the voice in your head that tells you that something is wrong, right? We've talked about this before, that you you look at the Holocaust and, you know, we've got this gorgeous map behind us and you you look at the names of these places you think about the millions of people, 10,000 people a day slaughtered in Auschwitz. Like nothing, like nothing the world had seen before. Genocide on an unprecedented, targeted way. That's a rust industrialized way. That's wrong, right? That was wrong. We can say absolutely that it's wrong. And I don't believe that it will continue to be wrong after humans have ceased existing. Because once there's no one to observe it... What what does it mean? What is the significance of it? But I'm not sure why that's important to you because what difference does it make? What? Oh, it's 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 a, it's a specific philosophical thing about naturalism and whether or not morality exists as a natural property because it's it's the important it's I'm putting the importance of the emphasis of the fact that morality is only a human construct and will cease to be when humans stop. Right? But there is a there is a voice in your head, right? Call it conscience, call it empathy, call it morality, call it whatever you want to. That you see six million people get murdered and you feel deep down within you that it's wrong. You know that it's wrong. God created you on your view. So that conscience on your view is something that God instilled you with. It's not something that happened by accident. God doesn't let accidents happen, right? He couldn't have created you and this conscience just be something that is a human thing. And it can't be something that you have free will to decide. Because even on my view, you don't have free will to decide what your conscience thinks. The conscience is 
is is non it, it's non-conscious you know it's you don't you don't get to choose what you think is right or wrong so you said to me before that the holocaust must on some meta level be right because god doesn't do wrong anything that god does is right and there must be it must be part of this plan god must have engineered the holocaust and so on some meta level the holocaust is right according to god what sort of a you god are right it's a dodgy word that i would say that would be a, a a significance or reason so god does god god can do things that are wrong right? God can't do wrong God or right. Some things like it's above that whole discussion of right or wrong. It has some religious significance, but I can never say why. How dare God instill you and instill me with a sense of empathy and love and a conscience that tells me that those things are wrong and then commands me to do it? How dare God? Make me feel like murder is wrong. Unless you're a psychopath or a sociopath, the act of murder will feel wrong. It's not as simple a question as saying, you know, could you murder this guy, right? If you, if I gave you a knife and gave you a billion pounds or it was the last person in the world, right, if there were no consequences to it, you would still struggle to kill another human being, right? It's not an easy thing to do. Your mind and your body stops you from doing it, mm. right? How dare God command us to commit genocide and yet instill us with that conscience? When you say command you to commit genocide, can you tell me where God commanded? The Amalekites. Oh, in terms of the Amalekites. That is a specific... You're taking something and blowing it out of proportion. That is a specific race who are very evil people. Oh, it's all right. It's all right, guys. They were, they were, they were, they were the bad ones. You're not on my... Not on my... Not on my decision... They were evil people. And you had similar parallels when you have, you go back to the Second World War, where you had hundreds of thousands of soldiers who went out there and killed other human beings, not because they necessarily lost their empathy, but because they saw them as a people who committed great evil. Now, if there had been somebody out there that had hurt me or hurt my mother or hurt my children or, you know, anyone like that, then my empathy starts to disappear a little bit. And by the time I see what they've produced in those concentration guys or those death camps, then my empathy is all but gone. And in fact, many soldiers didn't just that, but they came into the camps, they went berserk, some of them. Some of them sometimes it's just machine guns. So Nazi guards. The fact the fact that empathy Empathy had change over time and could be manipulated no. means that it's not significant. No, it means that it's something and it's good, and you should be empathetic, and that's probably the reason, or that might be one of the significances why we do not know the reasons why it sticks. And because if we did, if we had access to that information, what would that do to me? Just, I find it interesting that, you know, on, in, on this discussion, it's really easy to look at divide command theory, which seems to be an objective moral scale, right? You know, it claims things are wrong or right because God says they're wrong or right. And my view is, you know, cultural relativism, that it's only it's only correct because 
you know, that's what happens to be right based on, you know, the ladder of ideas and cultures across time. It would be, you would, you would think that it would be harder to say something is wrong on my view. And yet your view can't quite condemn the Holocaust. I want to condemn the Holocaust. I don't know how you get there. I you think that the Holocaust completely. But you believe but that you, I have why... God did it and God is not evil. So the God... Therefore, it's not evil on some ground. So well, you have to get God. You have to be part of God to understand that. I'm not part of God. And therefore, I will never make peace with it. But what sort of, what sort of an explanation is it to say? It's... It's just God. It's just it's, it's godly. It's beyond it's, our understanding. It's one that you most people have difficulty. It's a cut out. Is what it no, is. It's, not. it's a lack of humility. A lack of humility. Yeah, I'm too egoistic to accept that there's something beyond my own mind that sees things in a different perspective. I too much full of my own importance. I am the final arbitrator of what's right or wrong. And you're asking me to accept something which I decided is wrong. And you think I have decided that the Holocaust is wrong? No. I mean, I, not you and I. I mean, no, no, no. But, but, but it's not one individual that's decided it. This is the thing I'm trying to... I'm trying to... I'm, 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 I'm saying better than that. I'm saying all of humanity, and even all of the Torah. There's nothing in the Torah no, that justifies the Holocaust. You can't... You know, there are punishments in the Torah. There are descriptions of plagues and all sorts of things might happen to you if you don't follow the word of God, which in itself requires explanation. So you think the Holocaust was damnation from God? No. It doesn't fit in with any of those. The, your worst threat in the Bible doesn't come anywhere near to the fear of the Holocaust. Oh, I don't know. God supposedly killed everyone on the everyone on the planet except for one family and a bunch of animals. Uh, firstly, you don't know how many people there was. Plenty. Secondly, that is something which I have no information about. I don't know how they were. But if God says they were very evil, that means they must have deserved it. But they, like the children as well. Just say the same about the whole, the old the old people. They all just deserve to, to be to be killed by a fly. I, I don't know what 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 they did wrong. There's no reference to it. But God says quite clearly they had they were living very evil ways of life, and that doesn't that doesn't he is the one that made them. It doesn't concern me. At it doesn't concern you that the God you blindly follow, or not blindly follow, but the God doesn't concern you that the God that you follow once genocided the world for reasons that he didn't think was important enough to put in the book. I don't need it to put in the book. I trust him. If he decided there were evil people, you. God decided that means that means it's evil. Can I ask you something? Do you think all the Nazis were evil people? Do you think every single one? I think that they they were you can't you can't put them all together in one lot. There were those who were very evil. Absolutely. There were those who were very evil. And there were those who were less evil but were following orders. There were those who were part of the gang and the pack and they didn't even enjoy what they were doing. And there were those who weren't evil at all. And there were those who were following orders. And you know what? It's very easy to look at the Nazis and say all the Nazis were evil. And I think on a on a general scale for general discussion, yes, we should refer to the Nazis as evil, right? However, I would bet my entire life that not every single Nazi was evil. 
I'll, I'll get one better to you. There's this town who escapes, named Escapesman. The one Friday night, they came in, the Nazis. And they methodically went through every house and took the Jews out. They had this, they knew every, every single Jew, bar one. But if I'm not mistaken, his name was Cohen? I can't remember what his name was. They walked, He saw them from the window, and they walked past his house. Never came up the path. They left that one Jew alone. Do you know who that was? Yeah. It was the doctor of Hitler's mother. Which in the fascinating world of evil, which we're all fascinated by, this man, who is the most evil person I know of, both from the Torah, out the Torah, since the Torah, engineered such terrible, terrible things. Something within him said, this is the guy that looked after my mother. Don't touch him. It's, I don't want to actually say that there's even goodness there because I'm not going to give him that credit. It's a difficult one. But it's, it's very, you, you, you can't deny the fact. It's like, yeah, but also like, yeah, Hitler was vegetarian and loved animals. Like on one view, like he liked children as well. Yeah, like if you want to, you're so rudely like art, you know, if you want to look for good things about bad people, they can be found. But yeah. the point I'm more making. Now this is, this is more. But the point, the point that I'm making is that like, the idea that every single Nazi was inherently evil all the way through is provably false. Right. Therefore, no. the idea that every Amalekite would be evil all the way through is wrong. I don't can't believe, make that assertion. I don't believe in the existence of an evil race. And I think to even acknowledge that that would be possible is racist. I think that to say... The idea that a race of people could all be evil, I think that is inherently racist. And therefore, to command us to kill the Amalekites, God must have known, if this is true, that some of the Amalekites weren't evil, because it is not possible that all of them were evil. Again, you make that assertion. Okay, but let's take, the story, you, uh, because, let's take the story of the Good Samaritan, for example. I mean, I want to go back to your previous point. You have made a decision, on you based on your understanding, your opinion, that says you cannot have an entire race. Based on evidence and empiricism, the entire rest Only of the Only upon in front of you, but you're going back to... No, I have the history of all civilizations. There's never been a civilization. There's never, there's, there's never been a civilization where every single member is completely evil. It's an, it's an absurd thing to suggest. No, that's in your opinion. But here I have God telling me that there is one... History isn't my opinion. It, it, this is God's words. Now you can either God's word yeah. is your opinion. <laughs> my opinion. It's your opinion to believe God's word. Yeah, it is. It is God's word. I, something that I believe, believe is true. Or you believe it's God's word? No, I know it's God's word. Because and I've been had. I know that you're not right. And in that sense, you believe that it's God's word. Well, you you could you could say I know that two plus two is five, right? Just because you say I know it doesn't mean that it's not a belief. If it's an incorrect belief. While you may think it's knowledge, it's a belief. I describe belief as something which I don't have clear evidence. No, I believe that this chair is here right now. It's still correct to say 
no, that's not the F, that's not the true meaning of the word belief. Believe me, something that you accept without having necessarily the evidence for. As I believe you. Belief is something that you accept without evidence. That belief function. That's a, that's a big claim. You're you've defined it as that, and I think I don't agree. Well, with that, that that's, it, well, that's the way I'm using the word. Okay, what do you know belief to mean? That. To know something means you're talking about fact. That's not belief. That's belief. Faith. Belief or belief is faith. Ooh. Okay, we're gonna we just disagree on a semantic thing here. But yeah. So let's let's re, let's use the word faith. Well, I'm, I'm using the word you have. I'm using the word belief in the sense. I do not know 100%, I may have some point, just I do not know 100% that what, what the person is saying or what the claim that has been made is true, but I believe it. It means I'm prepared to accept it without necessarily having 100%. So I accept what you say, I believe you. I don't know this to be true, but I'm prepared to believe you. That's the word, the function of the word belief, I think. That is more okay, if that's how you if that's how you're using yeah. belief then. So if you say to me about something that happens in the Torah is something I believe and I say no, it's not quite a belief. I don't believe in the Torah. Everything in the Torah says is one hundred percent true. Why is it one hundred percent true? That goes back to our original argument about the tradition of the Torah coming from the God and the fact that it was witnessed as being God's instruction to Moses means that everything he said is true. So why do I accept that the Creation was in six days because God says so. That's what we put with the term. Why do I believe Avram even exists? Why do I believe the Molochites even exist? You don't have any evidence of them. The same source that tells you the Molochites exist tells you that God said that there were evil people and they were to be destroyed. Just on a side note here, it couldn't matter less to me whether or not the Amalekites existed. Oh, yeah, but this is just the, no, no, the, but, the but, but the point the point being made is that. It doesn't matter whether they existed or not. The fact that someone at some point masquerading as God or actually as God commanded you to kill another race of people, whether they're real or not, you know, it, that's still immoral. Commanding, that is something commanding that, genocide is immoral. You don't like the answer. I don't like the act of commanding genocide. That's an outrageous way to put it. Well, you 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 would object to that, and today. Yes, I object to genocide. I would also object to genocide. Yet your God commands it on me. That's the Amalekites, and that is because God says they are evil people. So if I know that these are evil people, if I have the evidence, you'd have the trial. The Nazis believed the Jews were evil people. They believed the Okay, We fall into the same trap. You make and I make the claim you don't know that God exists, and you don't know you can't know you you don't. The whole point of God is faith. The whole point of religion is faith. No, that is why that is worth the point. Those are the two main points that we diverge on, and that's why we don't have a synonymous view on these things. Number one, I do not see that God is something that you have to accept on faith. I believe this is a provable thing. And I do not accept, number two, that the Torah is simply something which is accepted belief. I believe that there's the evidence points to that being the word of God. That means, and that is the underpinning behind everything that's in the Torah, good, bad, or indifferent. The good and the bad, we can argue, it's the ugly we don't like. And the fact that those are Molochites, I do not like genocide. I would never propose that. I would never suggest any race is evil. But if God says to me, these people are evil. You have to destroy them. I'm not going to question that. Do what, can I commit genocide? No, I can't. I'm I'm one of those that the Bible talks about that is is weak on the side. So they hear the crashing of the swords and they would run away. I'd run away because I can't do that type of thing. I fake and I see blood. 
let's alone kill anybody. But there are those who can do it. And if necessary, they had to do it. And go back to the Second World War, all those who had to put on a uniform and go out and fight the Nazis who were, if not themselves inherently evil, what they were doing was an instruction of an evil man, and therefore by extension they were doing evil things. Well then, yeah, they had to do it, and they had to kill people, they had to look at in their sights, and uh, you know, like the Private Ryan, the Saving Private Ryan, to look at their sights and say their prayers. Who are you praying to, God? What are you praying to, to kill people? You really think that that's a good prayer? Well, yeah, in this situation, that's the that's morally the right thing to do, morally. So, so you agree? So, absolutely, so you, the monocrats were agree, evil people. You agree with culture? You agree with cultural relativism that sometimes morality changes based on the situation, and that in certain situations, morality is uh, the morality doesn't change. It's the situation that changes. So, killing nowadays. Even though God, even though I God never said anything about today's generation as being said, there's not a single case where you could justify genocide because God said, the Gondomer said that. And if God came to me and told me that, well, I, you know, that would be a situation that doesn't happen because I'm not a prophet. I'm not in a position to receive the word of God. If somebody came in and said to me, this is what God said, I said, well, how do I know what you're saying is true? Okay. Which is what all the false messiahs, are, you know, they're tempted to try and get the Jews to follow them, and they never did, based on the same ways of thinking. So that's where you and I are going to always, we're going to, it's, it's going to go back to those roots. If you don't, as much of the podcast does. <laughs> yeah, if you believe that what God is saying is right. All right. Well, at that point, that's probably a good point to uh, to end our episode for today. Uh, to, to, to summarize, you know, uh, I think that blindly following the Torah for your morality or blindly following any religion for your morality is, in my view, less reliable than following your individual God. Calling it blind. I'm calling it blind. You don't agree that it's blind. I think it's, I think it's blind. I think that they're all equally as reliable as, as each other in that sense. But um, I want to reiterate that my, my view of morality is, is not that anything is acceptable. You know, I'm, I'm, I want to make that very clear that just because I think that people will forget the Holocaust, people will objectively forget the Holocaust because at one point there will be no people left. And uh, does that mean that the Holocaust is not wrong at the moment or wasn't wrong at the time? Absolutely not. It was absolutely wrong at the time. Is it wrong on some sort of universal scale? No, I don't think so. I don't think morality exists on some sort of universal scale. And I, I would encourage people in all, in all spheres of life with, with all of the current discussion that's happening around morality in the world. Um, I think it's important to remember that no one society is right. And it's the ladder that you will look at, not the individual society. And let's Let's remember and let's be hesitant to attach ourselves to any ideologies that claim to have morality, because I find that any any ideology which claims to have the correct morality is wrong, because no one can ever claim to have the correct morality. And the absolute best we as humans can hope to do is keep persevering, keep trying to find it, work on yourself, listen to your intuitions, because they are supremely valuable and 
keep trying to be better. Uh, but I would advise people to not let themselves fall into the trap of uh, deciding that one morality is correct and that that has to be followed to the T. I think let's follow the ladder of ideas and let's arrive at a morality that is both classic and contemporary and that incorporates the best of humans throughout time rather than the worst of humans throughout time. On that note, uh, thank you all very much for listening to today's episode. I've really enjoyed it. I think it's been one of our best so far. Mm. Love the discussion. Jonathan, as ever, thank you for coming on. I hope you enjoyed it too. I enjoyed it too as well. I would uh, also want to wrap up and say mm. that uh, I do believe that morality has an objective uh, good to it and that whether or not human beings remember or there to witness it, you know, if the tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Well, if morality falls in a metaphorical forest, yes, it makes a very big bang and it doesn't make any difference whether people there or not. And that the objective, good or bad, is not the side of like, human beings. We are not very, we don't have a good track record of that. Um, some things we tend to have got right, most of civilization, things like murder and stealing, but when it suited us, We've suspended our feelings about that, particularly when it comes to war. The fact that there exists a notion of war in humanity, that we cannot resolve our differences just through conversation, means that we've got something inherently wrong there. And it's not just a one-off. It's a regular occurrence. It's something that's gone on for centuries. And that my decisions of what's right and wrong are useless when I'm faced with things which war. Um, convince me which will bias my opinion and I have to refer to the higher authority and find out if this is right or wrong now God will in most situations we have it clearly there'll be some areas where we'll have doubts about it as you mentioned earlier on in your in some things you were saying yes we'll walk back to that but the vast majority of cases that will be the, the arbitrator he will be both from the point of view to make a decision as to what is right and what is wrong, and be, be that he is God, he's in a position to tell me, this is my world, I made you, I made the people, the people I made the problem as well as the cure, and I'm telling you that this is right, this is wrong. So why is it wrong to murder? Because God said so. That is my, uh, that is, I believe that is the orthodox way of deciding things. Okay, good to see you, Matt. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of A Rabbi and a Philosopher Walk Into a Podcast. As always, if anyone has any comments, feedback, or wants any of my references, my email is in the description. And keep aiming up. We'll see you next time.